Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Ranjani Donraj, a U.S. Army War College fellow at Denver University and your host for today's podcast on Afghanistan. On August 30th, 2021, the last U.S. troops left Afghanistan, ending America's longest war and leaving a number of unanswered questions and reflections about the failed venture. Just six months later, Russia began its war on Ukraine, ending any comprehensive reflection by the Department of Defense or the Army on the war in Afghanistan. History shows us the military doesn't like to dwell on failures. Following Vietnam, the military was quick to move on and suggests that we internalize the lessons to never do that again. I'm here to have the conversation because while a lot has been written about the missteps, there's much to be written about the solutions that would have lent to better outcomes. It's easy to get bogged down in all of the contributing factors or for those in the military to place blame with the policy and resourcing provided by our civilian leaders. But design, training, and assessment for the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces was solely the armies. Towards building armies, how do we do better? As this is a task we largely undertake through security force assistance, defined as the development of the capability and capacity of foreign security forces and their supporting institutions, I've invited a guest deeply vested in this effort. Major General Don Hill is currently the commander of Security Force Assistance Command. He previously stood up 2nd Security Force Assistance Brigade and then deployed it across Afghanistan and Iraq while simultaneously serving as the commander, train, advise, assist, command, east. Welcome to the war room, sir. Great to be here, Ron. Great, sir. In November 2020, you were on a Breaking Doctrine podcast espousing the accomplishments of the SFABs in Afghanistan. Of course, this was about 10 months before Kabul fell. What lessons did you take away from that experience to inform the training and employment of the Security Force Assistance Brigades as we see them today? So when you say, what what did I take away from the experience? Are you talking about the experience commanding 2nd Brigade or the experience that I observed from the sidelines watching uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Either of those, sir, work. Okay, so I, I think those are those are two different things that, that we looked at. and. I, I want I want to I want to get back to that, but I want to bring up one of the things that you brought up in the intro about the little time for reflection since you know we've we've fallen or we come out of Afghanistan and the invasion of Russia and the transition. It, it really wasn't like it just happened in 24 February that we transitioned to a focus on LISCO. That was something that was already going. But but I think that there was more time and more thought put into that uh, at the Department of the Army level and even probably at the DOD level uh, prior to what, what happened in Afghanistan. And so what I'd like to do is start with, you know, 2017, General Milley's vision that created the SFABs. Uh, part of that was, you know, the organizational force structure change in the army. Hey, we're going to have this dedicated permanent organization focused on advising, which was a sea change from the previous 
practice of these ad hoc teams, teams, mitts, pits, spits, SFATs, which were either an ad hoc team of, of folks that the Army threw at the problem, sent to Fort Riley, you know, put them together to be a mitt team and then sent them forward to Afghanistan or Iraq, or taking the, the soldiers out of a BCT using the leaders, officers, and NCOs and giving them a mission, hey, you're an SFAT, now this is a mission and go do this advising thing. So it was the sea change from that practice to, hey, we want this professional organizational change in the structure of the Army to have these dedicated advisors. And so I think the learning started earlier, and that was the chief of staff saying, Hey, we, we've learned enough. We, we learned from Vietnam, and he quoted Vietnam frequently when, when we were standing up the SFABs. And he talked about his experiences as a brigade commander carving up his brigade to provide forces for Afghanistan and Iraq. And he said, we, we've got to professionalize this. We've got to stop doing this on the cheap. We've got to put some effort into that. And so I think that learning and that reflection started even before the fall in Afghanistan. Uh, so I think it started you know, a little bit further out. Now, you know, there, there was some reflection internal to uh, the brigades as we built the brigades to go to Afghanistan. And that reflection was on what, what had we really learned uh, both from Vietnam and that experience? Uh, and then what had we learned in all of those other exercises that we'd done, the, the MIT teams, the embedded training teams, the SFAT missions. And we spent a lot of time. We hired a lot of advisors into those, those initial uh, brigade formations who had served in that capacity. And, and that was because, one, we were looking for those skill sets and those experiences, but also because a lot of those soldiers said, hey, that, that was a great mission. I got a lot out of it. I learned a lot. I believe in that. I believe in building partner capacity and, and trying to get an Afghan solution to an Afghan problem or an Iraq solution to an Iraq problem. And so we got a lot of those folks into the formations early on and, and, and we you know, talked to them and said, hey, how did you do this? And we had those conversations and I had them in second brigade. And so I think, again, that dialogue was ongoing as we were building the brigades. What has happened specifically since the fall in Afghanistan and the the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in, in 2022 specifically, is we have evolved the roles and missions and our understanding of our role in conflict versus just competition or crisis. And so we talk about Afghanistan and Iraq, a security uh, force assistance mission, a uh, stability force operations mission in a counterinsurgency environment. And, and we really, I think the Army understood that based on the, you know, the multiple decades that we did that. I'm not saying we got it right every time, but I think we, we understood that. And so building the SFABs, we built the SFABs specifically for that mission. Very Afghan-centric. Uh, the initial order that establishes said, you know, tactical advising at the CANDAC level. Well, that, that means in Afghanistan. And so we built, you know, dot mil PF, doctrine, organization, training. It was very specific to the Afghan situation. Since then, uh, as we've evolved, as we, you know, the order that establishes to go to Afghanistan also said, hey, eventually we're going to get this regional alignment and we're going to align all these brigades to the COCOMs. As we did that, as we started drawing down in Afghanistan, 
we started shifting focus to, okay, we know what, we know what we got to do to go to Afghanistan. And we built a training plan to do that. And then we started saying, okay, what do we need to do to be regionally aligned? And about 2020, we were really full force into that. We were still in Afghanistan, but then we were starting to get the regional um, alignment and the regional engagements working. And then 2022, you know, we'd been doing the regional alignment, regional engagements for a couple of years. We'd really pulled out of Afghanistan sooner than we thought, but that gave us bandwidth to further refine what we do in the competition space in our regional alignments. But now, and it was accelerated with the Russian invasion, now we've really got to define what we do in large-scale combat operations. What do we do in conflict? And so uh, I, I think we have evolved over the last six years since 2017. I think that it's been informed by a lot of history. Uh, we haven't got it right every time. We're still learning. I tell people all the time, we're, we're you know, the SFAC and the SFABs are just toddlers. You know, we're six years old at the oldest. And so we're still getting our feet underneath us. But the whole enterprise is still learning how to employ us, whether it's the COCOMs, whether it's the ASCCs. Uh, and it's also our partners are learning this. Hey, look, we, we're, we're not in a counterinsurgency. What, what do you do for us advisors? And we say, hey, this is what we could do. What do you want us to do? And those types of things. So I, I think there's been a lot more learning going on than um, you, would, you, would, you would think from if you just look at the calendar and the dates that we pulled out of Afghanistan, the dates that Russia invaded, uh, because I think this has been something the Army's been wrestling with for decades. Uh, and I'll, I'll pause there. That was a lot to throw at you, but I think I addressed what you were talking about. No, I, I agree, sir. And, and in doing my research on Afghanistan, I you know, the, the SVAB, I think, was the biggest institutional learning that we did coming out of Afghanistan. And like you said, that, that learning started before the fall of Kabul, you know, so now we have an organization that's going to address the ad hoc nature um, and the absence of context that our advisors had going into Afghanistan. Uh, But there's definitely still work to be done. Uh, We'll talk a little bit later on about institutional capacity building, we probably won't get to dependency on Western equipment, uh, but there's something to be said for our foreign military sales model. Sir, what assumptions have we made about security force assistance to enable movement in this direction? Well, I think we, we've, it, it's not an assumption, it's a fact, but I think it's, it's a, there's some people that thinks it's a debatable fact. We, we have said this is part of the Army's mission and our enduring partnership, which is mentioned in the National Security Strategy and all the documents below that, uh, means that there is a need for security force assistance. And the Army's contribution to that goes everything from, like you touched on, the four military sales and the things that the U.S. Army's uh, Security Cooperation Command provides but it's also the security force assistance brigades to provide that advice, uh, support, liaison, and assessments that, that's part of that. So I, I think uh, it's a fact, but you, you, you can argue it's an assumption that, hey, we're going to be in this business for the foreseeable future. And so this commitment to a force structure change uh, is, is, you know, for the long term, you know, there, there's this the story that at the uh, end of the Vietnam War, somebody called Fort Leavenworth and said, "Hey, burn all the manuals on counterinsurgency." Uh, my last job, I spent two years working at Fort Leavenworth. I couldn't get anybody to confirm that story, uh, but but I, there's there's probably some 
some a grain of truth to the idea that the army tried to flush a lot of those lessons learned. The army is now committed to hey, we got to institutionalize this. It's not just, you know, again, back to the dot mill PF aspects of it. It's not just the organizational commitment. We're going to build these brigades. It's the doctrinal uh, commitment. And we're getting ready to the Michigan Command Center of Excellence and uh, CAC, Combined Arms Center, getting ready to publish uh, three 22, which is the Army's support to security cooperation, which is a great manual. I wish I'd had it six years ago. It'd been great if we'd had it 20 years ago because it really helps capture all of these lessons learned from the last couple of decades and helps roll up this this monster that is security cooperation and security force assistance that's not just an Army uh, problem set. It's it's a Department of Defense and it's a whole of government problem set. So I think, again, that we're we're assuming which I, I would argue it's a fact that it's not going to go away. We're going to do it. We've got to invest in it. And that means we've got to invest uh, time, effort, money, resources, people. And, and we, we are the embodiment and embodiment of that uh, at the tactical level. So the nature of authorities and funding, I'm sure, creates a patchwork of efforts in these countries around the world. If you had to guess at the number of those cases that are for lethal capability, what would that percent be? And how do we better address supporting warfighting functions like sustainment and intelligence and or institutions to ensure we are building a balanced and not a dependent force? So, so that's a great open-ended question. You know, what, what percentage of DOD activities are lethally oriented? Uh, oh, wow. Let me, let me think. Uh, I, and I'm not an ORSA, so I don't have that statistic on uh, immediate recall. But I think we've got to remember that we're, we're in the security business and so pr- pretty much everything we do is helping a partner apply some sort of lethal application to help a- achieve a, a solution. Uh, but I-, I can't give you a percentage. But, but I'm going to go back to the example I used. You know, is professionalizing the non-commissioned officer corps, is, is that a lethal focus? I think you could argue both ways. I mean, it's it's professionalizing them so that they understand the, the law of armed conflict, so that they understand you know how to pe- treat people with dignity and respect, uh, our values, instill those values, how to make sure that the military is not a threat to the democratically elected government that, that we are partnered with. Is that a lethal training effect? Uh, I don't think so. But we also are making these non-commissioned officers better non-commissioned officers so that they can lead their soldiers in, in combat. That's a lethal application that's eventually going to manifest itself. Uh, so w- we do that. Do we teach people how to shoot weapons? Yes, we do that. Do we teach them how to shoot, you know, artillery, crew serve weapons, uh, do live fire exercises? We, we do that as well. But again, I go back to, you know, we want to be the advisor that our partners need and that that is tied to what the combatant commanders want to achieve with our partners to to increase security in the, in their theater. And so, I, you know, I, when we were talking about training armies, there's a lethal aspect to that. Uh, but I think we do a little it's a little bit more sophisticated. Yeah, no, I uh, you definitely keyed in on that, the lethality of what we do, sir. I just, you know, as we saw in We're Afghanistan. We're an army. We're supposed to be lethal, right? That's, that's what true. We, we, uh, we, if we go spend time with you and, and you're not more lethal when we leave, uh, we need to go back and, and retrain ourselves and then come back and help you get more lethal because that, that's what we want. We want our partner armies to be lethal yeah. in, in the right way. 
And we also want them to be able to facilitate their own logistics. We even have NATO partners that have insufficient logistics capability. Um, and after 20 years in Afghanistan, that was a definite shortfall of the security forces there that they couldn't resupply themselves uh, in a way that was sustainable. So, um, well, okay, let's talk about that for a second, though. Uh, you're talking capacity versus capability. And so they had the capability to resupply themselves. And, and when I mean they had the capability, they had the systems and processes. They had depots. They had their version of an Army Material Command. Uh, I think it was called LogCom. They had uh, depots within each of the provinces that were aligned against their cores. And they had you know Army depots. They had National Police depots. So they had the infrastructure and the enterprise, the capability to do that. Where I think what we did a poor job of assessing and dealing with was the capacity. And I think part of that was our lack of cultural awareness and understanding the Afghan culture and our relationship with our Afghan partners versus the Afghans' relationship with each other. And one, one of my uh, battalion commanders described it that, we, you know, we built great relationships with our as Afghan partners and we built great loyalties between our Afghan partners and us. What we failed to recognize was that some of our Afghan partners were not loyal to one another. And so even though we built this capability, uh, they didn't have the capacity to execute that because they didn't necessarily trust each other. And so an example I'll give you is we were partnered with uh, 201st Corps when I was in Tech East. And we were, we were assessing their use of artillery in support of their operations. And so we studied their consumption rates. We studied where they had positioned their artillery. We studied based on the position, based on the consumption, where the significant acts were, where they were getting in gunfights, and whether or not they were actually using the artillery to try to help support their units when they were in contact. And they did not have the guns where they were supposed to be, where they should have been, and they were not using the guns that were in the right places because they, to your point about the sustainment system, they they said this, the sustainment system doesn't work. If I shoot these rounds, I'm not going to get any more rounds. So there's a cultural aspect to the fact that that's a very Soviet-like mentality, which was still resonant within some, some of the leaders of their military. Hey, I've got a warehouse. I've got to have 100 rounds of artillery because the commissar is going to come inspect, and I better have 100 rounds of artillery. Uh, and so they, they were very protective of that. And so what we did to help make that work was we, we had advisors at Echelon. We call it the advisor network. So we had advisors with the artillery batteries. We had advisors with the battalions and the brigades that, that were the fighting and needing to use the artillery. And then we had sustainment advisors within the sustainment structure of the Corps all the way up to the, the national level at LogCom. And we said, okay, look, you, you request the resupply and we think it'll work. And our, because we were at Echelon, we were able to track that request and we could find out where it got bottlenecked, where it got lost. And we, we were able to sharpshoot those issues, whether it was an individual, whether it was inept. Usually when you're talking about artillery, it wasn't corruption, but it was just, again, someone that was protecting their little fiefdom of a depot or something. But we were able to work through those things, and this did not happen overnight. This takes time. Rome wasn't built in a day, uh, nor are armies built in a day. 
but we got it to the point where they became much more trustworthy of that supply system. And we started getting their artillery to support their operations. Uh, we did a couple other things, moving the artillery around, but that, that took time. And so I think that was an example of where we, we understood, we took the time to assess and figure out where the issues were, but it started making us realize that they, they didn't trust each other. They would trust us more than they would trust people may, who may even be in their own chain of command. And there's tribal issues. There's political issues. There's you know, the, the enemy had a vote. There were people that were compromised by the enemy, the Taliban or, or, or ISIS or those kinds of things. And, and, and we were we were like going, hey, look, we've, we've built this capability what, what, how come you guys aren't making this happen? And it took us a while to sort through that and figure that out. We, we, some of those things we didn't fix fuel, fuel. We couldn't fix because unlike a 152 millimeter shell, which, you know, I'm not sure what the going rate is on the average, uh, uh Afghan market for a 152 millimeter round is, but it probably wouldn't give the F the, the average Afghan probably wouldn't give him much money for it. Whereas a gallon of fuel. Okay. There's a very, very, uh, uh, high degree that, that that's going to get pilfered and that's going to hit the black market because there's, there's a big black market for that. So we, we couldn't fix the fuel problem. We tried to, we worked hard, we identified some issues. We got the Afghan leadership to fire some people, but the fuel was just something that we couldn't get through that cultural issue of the, the corruption, the lack of trust, the inability of certain leaders to hold other people accountable because they were politically connected or tied to other corruption. So I, I think, you know, the systems were there. I think the capability was there. It was the capacity of them to do what we needed them to do, what they needed to do and our, um, you know, lack of capacity to truly grasp early on how important that was to our ability to build a, a, a viable force. Is that getting at what you were talking about? No, definitely, sir. I mean, it, it does sound like a lot of coaching and mentoring, which I would put in the, the category of, you know, training, um, you know, but I take your point that, that you, uh, your assessment was a lot of that was a cultural deficit. Um, it Again, of- I'm not, it's, it's cultural on the Afghans part, but it's cultural on our part. We, we were naive. We, we, we thought, Hey, we taught them how to do the right thing. They're going to do it. And we, and then we, you know, we applied that American model. Why doesn't this work? We don't understand. Another major critique from Afghanistan was that we waited too long. I think it was 2015 to start really investing in the institutions that would sustain the Afghan national defense and security forces what we now refer to as the generating an executive function. Um, how is that being addressed today? So today I'll go back and look at that NCO Academy example. Again, you, you've got the Afghan model where what you're talking about is policy and a decision to invest in generating or executive level formations, people, institutions. That's a policy level thing. I, I don't, I don't do policy. Uh, but, where the policy has said to a GCC, we want to invest in country A, that's now the GCC and the Army Service Component Command developing these campaign plans that they that we work with that helps us understand, okay, are we are we building institutions? Are we reinforcing institutions? Are we focused on 
the operational level. And that is different depending on the country that we are in based on, again, the needs of that country and how they, you know, what we've got this theater that says they want to do this, but then you've got this partner who's saying, okay, sure. We like that. Or the partner may say, well, you know, we're not sure we like that. We, we want you to do this. And so it's, it's iterative and it's, um, Again, it's that back to what I said, we're all learning. So we were uh, another example. We were in a country and I'm not I'm not naming these countries because, you know, they all have vested interests, but I'm not making this up. Uh, So we're in this country and we've been there a couple of years and we were primarily partnered at the enterprise uh, institutional level. So we were doing train the trainer uh, instruction with their NCOs. They were taking NCOs out of their operational formations, bringing them back to the central location where we were. It was within 321 authorities, which allows us to train them. And we were, we were like, like I said, we we're talking, you know, law, land, warfare. We could talk about that. We could talk, uh, how did we did live fires with them? We were teaching them first aid training, trauma training, standard type stuff. And we did that for a couple of, uh, force packages and our force packages are six months long. And then what I think, I think the partner was assessing us because this is an area where we had not had a previous long-term commitment to this country at this level of engagement with, you know, deliberate advisors, heel to toe, persistent engagement. So I, I honestly think that 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 country was checking us out and like, going, okay, Americans are here. They say they're here to help. Let's see what they can do for us. And they saw it and they saw it heel to toe and it was good. Their NCOs got better. Uh, we were at, you know, one of the culminating events in, in, in one of these sessions was we were doing live fires with these uh, partner non-commissioned officers and it was, it was good stuff. And they said, Hey, we like this. This is good. And you guys seem to be committed to it. Hey, we want you to partner with this operational unit. Well, that's a different authority. So now we're discussing this. Now the ASCC and the GCC have got to get us the authorities to be able to do that. We've got to go, okay, we're over here training your, you know, running a, a train the trainer type program. Now you want us to go partner with an operational unit and do these other things. So we've got to adapt our training plan and our, our an advisor plan. We're in the midst of that transition right now. And so again, we're, we're being the partner that our, the, or the advisor that our partner wants. We're still meeting the ASCC's goals and objectives and, and, and uh, approach their line of effort, build partner capacity, you know, build uh, some of these lines of effort are like, you know, make the partner an exporter of regional security. We're, we're doing that as well, but now we're doing it under a different authority in a different way but that the partner has gotten a vote on uh, because I think, again, the partner, like we were assessing the partner, I think the partner was assessing us as well. And so that's, that's an example. And again, you know, we're, we're in 28 countries today. Uh, I'm not going to say there's 28 exquisitely completely different scenarios, but there's differences in all 28 of those. Sir, clearly we can't be everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, The TRADOC gap study on security force assistance, one of their big findings was there were so many different components doing security force assistance to include regionally aligned brigades, special forces, and even guard units uh, through their partnership programs. So 
how do you guys pass along what you've learned in terms of your best practices and indeed keep development in these countries at heel to toe? Right. We've, we've gotten better and better at that. And, and that's, I like to remind folks that, uh, you know, for those who aren't Star Trek folks, the Borg is this organization that everybody in the organization knows what everybody else is thinking all the time. And that's how the rest of the world thinks about the Americans in the Department of Defense. They, oh, you're the Americans. Well, you must know that these other Americans are doing this other stuff. And, and I look at them and I go, oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. And then I go back and I find out what the other Americans are doing. We're not the Borg. We don't all know all the time. That, that's why we've got to get that unity of effort. And so some examples of where we've gotten that right. 7th Infantry Division had some folks that were going out into the Pacific to a an exercise in a country where we had advisors from 5th SFAB. And, you know, so 7th Infantry Division called up 5th SFAB and said, hey, we're going to this country. You got anybody there? You've been there? Can you tell us anything about it? And 5th SFAB said, absolutely. And they sent some advisors over who had just come from there, and they set up a time, and they spent time with uh, the 7th ID folks who were going for that exercise and helped everything from the cultural aspects to the personalities and the the more information on that that partner and that army and all those kinds of things. So th- that's an example of where we are doing that. We in Europe, we work with the, the you know, there's a lot of regional aligned forces. There's a lot of U.S. forces in Eastern Europe right now for obvious reasons. And so one of the things that the U.S. Army Europe is doing in Fifth Corps that's 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 got the command and control of Fourth SVAB is they're trying to make sure we've got advisors where they need to be, but we're not putting advisors on top of the other conventional forces. You know, you don't want to overkill. And so there's only so many conventional forces that they've got. So you you try to put them where they can get the most bang for their buck. And then you put advisors in places where you, you, you can't put a BCT or an infantry battalion or an infantry company so that so that they can cover down on those other areas, whether it's it's more austere, it's smaller, it doesn't have the support structure to, to, to pull in a bunch of tanks or helicopters or all those kinds of things. And so we're working together so that we can we can make sure, you know, know your unit and employ it within its capabilities. We're, we're putting advisors where, where we only need advisors and we're letting the, the, the other larger uh, BCT-like formations or, or fires formations or whatever it is, aviation formations, we're letting them do those things. The other piece of that is one of, one of the good uh, stories is, you know, when we, when we flowed forces last year rapidly up into the Baltics, there was an advisor on the ground that met the first U.S. RAF forces that moved up there because we were already, I told you we're in 28 countries today, that number goes up and down, it, uh, 34 a couple of weeks ago it was 34 but you know if we're already there we're we're inside the A2AD bubble right we're we're on the ground and so if you want to flow forces in we we can do that's liaising that's supporting it's not just supporting our partners we can help facilitate RSO and I we can help liaise with that country that we're flowing all these Americans into to say hey this is where you need to go these are the people that are in charge we'll link you up with them I mean, that's, that's one of our, our tasks is to liaise. And so we, we are, we have done that uh, and we will continue to do that. And we are, um, we're engaged in, in the, in 
the three core warfighter. And that was one of the conversations I was having with the core commander because he, he was envisioning, okay, who's going to be on the ground in this warfighter when I flow uh, all these three core forces into theater. And I said, well, depending on the country, uh, we, we're going to have advisors on the ground. And at that point in time, that will be their mission is to help get you situated. And again, if we get enough heads up that you're coming, we can, we can tell you what we know about who's who in the zoo. Yeah, you, you can't understate uh, the access and the influence that your teams provide, uh, for sure. That's a tremendous benefit. And presence, access and influence, and the, 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 the heel-to-toe persistent engagement, especially in some of these countries that we have never been in before or have not been in with conventional forces for any period of time other than like a, an exercise for a couple of weeks. That presence, that persistent presence, that's that's how you build relationships. And relationships, uh, and it's even captured in 322. Relationships are our pacing items, and and you gotta you gotta be present to build a relationship. We we all know what COVID did to relationships. <laughs> Social yes, distancing doesn't facilitate relationship building. Uh, neither does not just not being there. Okay, sir. Final question: Much of what we learned in Afghanistan were similar lessons from Vietnam. How do we continue to operationalize what's been learned and balanced institutional knowledge of irregular warfare and security force assistance with a very myopic fixation on large-scale, multi-domain combat operations? I I take exception to your comment of myopic uh, focus (laughs) on LISCO and multi-domain operations. I I think just the term multi-domain operations is uh, uh, counterintuitive to myopic, Uh, but I, I get what you're going at. And I'm, I want to go back to things like 322 and doctrine. You know, you, you write it into doctrine, the Army's not going to lose sight of it. Uh, we've still got the counterinsurgency manual, 324. We all know how big a deal that was. Uh, we, we didn't throw that manual away. It's still on the bookshelf. And so, you know, it's still there. Part of, again, General Milley's vision was, hey, let's capture these lessons learned and let's institutionalize it. And so our efforts with TRADOC, to, to get things like 322 published, absolutely critical so that we captured this. And it's, you know, we don't just publish it and forget about it. One of the things that that is the the SFAC, the Security Force Assistance Commands mission, is to make sure it's current, it's up to date, it's a living document, and that we continue to inform it by our continued regional alignment efforts and competition. And then whatever we learn, whether it's through training and exercises in crisis or conflict or what we learn if we actually go into conflict. So I think that's, that's key. And it's not just 322. There's, there's a, our uh, ATP 396.1, which is about the SFAB that is under revision. The last time it was published was in 2017. I was uh, yesterday, I was visiting with the army capabilities managers, the ACM SFAB, and they are refining that document to not, lose what's in there that is coin and, and stability operations focus, but to add the LISCO aspects of it so that, again, we're capturing these lessons learned. We're not burning them like supposedly they did after Vietnam, but we've captured them in doctrine because if you put it in doctrine, we've got it as a reference. We'll teach it in PME. It won't be this thing that people go, you know, what security for assistance, what Text that. Uh, we don't want them to do that. We security force assistance may be the answer to the problem that they're staring at, and we want them to know that. And part of the way we do that is ensure that it's in doctrine so that it gets taught 
in our educational systems. It's been a great discussion, certainly a lot to work with here towards building armies. As was mentioned, the forthcoming updated FM 3-22, Army Support to Security Cooperation, memorializes some of the biggest lessons learned from Afghanistan, the significance of assessments, the imperative of foreign security forces' will to fight, and the necessity to develop executive function, generating force, and operating force capability simultaneously. Further developing and detailing how we do those things with rotational forces from varied units and all components, and frankly, DOD policy or combatant commanders that might prioritize the development of a deterrent effect, like building a quick reaction force, over building a sustainment support battalion so we don't have a dependent foreign security force, is now what we must contend with. Thank you to Major General Hill for your participation. Thanks for inviting us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time from the War Room, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Ranjani Donaraj. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.